And it does seem to have some other politically idealized language embedded into it where this issue then becomes immediately attached to a lot of other issues. And I think therein lies a lot of the Christian discomfort with um, and some part of pragmatism of what does this actually mean and what are the goals here and what are the other agendas that are attached to and associated with it. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. Nathan, you've done a lot of work on what is sometimes called climate justice. We could also throw the phrase climate change in there. These are topics with a good that just inspire a good deal of conflict. And it's also difficult to get a straight answer on the topic of climate change. So I thought it would be useful and instructive to kind of put you in oh, the yeah, hot could go seat wrong. here. Oh, hot seat. And I see what maybe you play did devil. <laughs> well, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> That's right. Some say it's getting hotter. So I want to, but before before we begin, I think a fitting point of introduction might be a, a recent statement that you've come across, Nathan, and it might it's it's a lengthy statement, but I think it helpfully outlines a little bit of the tensions here and why this seems to be such a serious topic for so many, and why there's so so much growing interest. Yeah, so so this is from the World Council of Churches. Yeah, so there's a there's a two part to this. One is I think to point to why it's so serious for some and why some people have a lot of difficulty taking it seriously on the other hand. Um and so yeah, this conversation you might be asking yourself, well why are they doing this now? Um I've been talking to Cameron uh, because the World Council of Churches um I want to read to you a little bit from theirs. The World Council of Churches Central Committee statement on the imperative for effective response to the climate emergency. And this is a, a multi-paragraph, um, kind of a little essay, call to action sort of thing. But the I, I'll just read you one sentence from it. So this is all one sentence. So the global metanoia required to confront this challenge must, first and foremost, entail an urgent phase out of fossil fuel extraction and use and a just transition to renewable energy sources that protects the rights of indigenous peoples and other marginalized communities and takes into account gender justice. Um, that's just a fascinating sentence. I, it's hard to know like where to start to try to break that down, much less decipher exactly what that means. Um, and Cameron's going to tell me what that means. Absolutely not. I'm going to ask you a question. Metanoia. Oh yeah. So repentance. Yeah. Let's start so the with repentance that word. or the the, yeah, the the change of the change of mind or yeah Greek word there that kind of foundation of our idea of repentance. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So we need a global repentance from fossil fuel. Um, but it's interesting to me. Like there's this is a, a continuously mm -hmm. changing like target of why we should be interested in this, and so it's just fascinating to me that the world council of churches the reason for that is the protection of indigenous peoples and, and gender justice now that being said uh, i think all gender justice yeah that's a yeah really all interesting human, one. like humans are important i i would include indigenous peoples and people of all gender uh as as part of humanity there um but i so part of the tension that it's highlighting here a couple things one is what do you do with that exactly and it does seem to have some other 
politically mm -hmm. idealized language embedded into it, where this issue then becomes immediately attached to a lot of other issues. And I think therein lies a lot of the Christian discomfort with, um, and some part of pragmatism of what does this actually mean and what are the goals here and what are the other agendas that are attached to and associated with it. So, um, and, and there's more to the report than that. I'm, I'm always a little disheartened. I think when you get down to kind of like you have all the condemnations and appeals and it doesn't really seem like there's going to be a whole lot that comes out of that. And then you have, you know, the urges for the advocacy with the national authorities for the introduction of legislation to ensure implementation of measures in accordance with the global Paris agreement. Um, my, my thing there is that mm -hmm. it seems like so much of this always defaults back to, this is a problem that we can solve by getting the government to solve it for us or by getting the nations of the world to sing Kumbaya and sort this out, which we have very little historic, um, so, so I'm saying, even if you take like, all right, let's, yeah, no let's say the way that all the, this is all talked about, even if we do have the prob problem accurately defined, the solutions that we're pitching for that, uh, seem disheartening at best based off of historical human and political actions. So I, I think it's an easy thing for people to dismiss. All right. So Yeah. No, that, that does make sense, especially, yeah, given the tone and the wording there. But along those lines, then, I think a fitting point of entry might be, Nathan, the question, and bear in mind, where you live is going gonna, is gonna to be an important factor when it comes to this conversation. So if you're tuning in from Seattle, for instance, your the conversations around your neck of the woods and in your coffee shops and in your public spaces are going to sound very different from the ones in mine here in Georgia. But in where I live here in the Bible Belt South, the question is still raised frequently, isn't, isn't a lot of this just simply pseudoscience? And so I'm wondering what an initial response to that might look like, because I, there's also a generational element here where it does seem, I mean, the more they press in, you know, the more we, we press into this question, invite, you know, what's now called climate justice. And you've given a full talk on this before, Nathan, which, by the way, we can put in the show notes here, because I think that would be a helpful conversation piece here. But climate justice is increasingly urgent and very important to the up and coming generation, people our age. But there are others who, are still, I think, not so much angry, but are more scratching their heads on this one. So let's let's begin with the actual science of this of this question, Nathan. And I'm I'm aware how broad <laughs> yeah. that is, but I'm wondering if you can help us find our bearings well, there a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the so so I would I would not use the word pseudoscience. I think there are people who are um, scientists who are really actively engaged in helping us understand and describe what's going on with the physical world around us. And that includes the climate and meteorology in general. Um, so that's kind of like a, a question of is, um, is weather forecasting science? Well, it's, it's not repeatable in some ways, but we do have enough of a massed data that we can construct models to say, given these conditions, this is probably what will happen. And I know we like to joke and there's deep frustration often at how inaccurate the weather is um, I was actually talking to a group of 
um, meteorology PhD mm -hmm. students once about this. And they said, actually, we're really good at forecasting the weather given the data that we have, but people don't recognize how complex of a system it is and how much data needs to be fed into a computing. So it's actually computing that is the limitation right now for weather. Uh, you would need to have sensors all over the place because there are microclimates and all these different um, ways that make it difficult to. So actually, I think it's pretty accurate most of the time. Um, just I'm, And here I'm talking about like, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? Because I think that's often like, well, we don't know what the weather will be like three days from mm -hmm. now. How are we forecasting the end of the world um, a few days out? So there are ways uh, in which we rely on models that are based on past experience to predict the future. And then we adjust our lives accordingly. Uh, for the most part. So I think there's a good deal of um, the the sensing of different data, whether it be uh, temperature or CO2 concentrations. I think there are some good conversations and pushbacks on how some of that is collected and uh, the reliability of some of that. But by and large, I think we can say that things on like general trends of uh, slight warming um, have been a part of human history for a very long time now. And we're, and we're seeing that. So yeah, I don't think you want to write off the entire thing. And that's probably what makes this conversation the most difficult is that it's not a clear cut, oh, this is ridiculous or, um, oh, we have to swallow all of this. I think there's a real wading through uh, all the voices that needs to happen in order to make sense of that. So how's that for a both and kind of answer to, but I also, but I wanted to say that we're also living in a context in which lots of stuff fits into that category. It's not just like climate data. A lot of science is sort of mm -hmm. were. Yeah. And and so, I mean, I think if you listen to maybe uh, older listeners would be familiar with something like Ira Flato's Science Friday NPR um, show. He wrote a book called Present at the Future, and he talks about how people would always call in or write into him angry that he talked about the uncertainty that was known among scientists on certain topics. And he said, this is a universal thing where there's sort of a a general cultural misunderstanding of how science works, where most people think it's this nice, neat, tight, linear. We go through the scientific method. We're taught that in middle school, and we think, you know, the scientific method, we just turn the crank, and this thing produces new information. And this is where really where the philosophy of science gets into it, um, and, and those are good discussions to have too. So that's in there of saying, no, science is like in a lot of categories is more like this amorphous blob of knowledge that's moving in a direction and the core of it is, mm -hmm. is, you know, you can kind of chart, but there are all these other things going on all around it as we're sort of probing into the unknown of what's happening. So some of it is, is that science just is super, super helpful and also isn't super, super clear immediately mm -hmm. on some topics. And that's a hard thing for us to accept that level of, of unknowns. You know, two things come to mind as you say that, Nathan. One, I want to call this the translation gap, where you're, and you actually saw this pretty dramatically with COVID nineteen, and on the one, so that gap is the gap that exists between scientists doing research on something. Well, it's research, so there are novel aspects to what they're looking at. This is new, so there's that research, cutting edge research taking place, and then public percep perception and opinion. And somebody has to translate this. And there's a considerable breakdown that often happens there, particularly when we're dealing with something new, right? And you saw that with, with COVID-19 and you saw, ma you know, major distrust, which 
comes about also, so you got the translation gap where you've got the information from scientists. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand. It's hard to parse. It's hard to interpret. And then the, the move to quickly disseminate it, to get it out into the hands of the public as soon as possible. But because of that, there are necessarily, you know, gaps, mistranslations, misunderstandings. So there's that. There's the translation gap. But then there's the other aspect, and you hit on this, where people are so dismayed to hear that, oh my goodness, errors routinely make it into peer-reviewed scientific journals. I'm tempted to say that people, yes, they do. I think a lot of people believe science is this neat linear process, but I actually think I would go further and say some people look at science almost as magic. Yeah. And they think it's this kind of fail-safe, yeah, in, not always, but maybe maybe it's not voiced that way, but this kind of infallible source of power that we have, which it's not. It's an immensely useful discipline and tool, but it's also a human institution and it's a human tradition and mistakes are made. But just because a mistake is made, just because, for instance, to go back to COVID-19, I'm not necessarily, you know, Dr. Fauci's greatest fan, but if Dr. Fauci changes his mind on some mask policy in light of new research, when somebody then swoops in and says, aha, that discredits everything that we've heard about COVID-19, well, no, that's a misguided response. And it's a misguided response because you're misunderstanding how science yeah, and actually I think works. Most, so I, I think those are two yeah, factors and most here. most scientists yeah. that I, are, are scientists because they enjoy that. Like science is about pushing the boundaries of what's known and, and trying to figure that out. And I think there's kind of a a wonder that we have sitting at the edge of what we know and, and learning. So I think it's a, uh, a deeply fulfilling thing for people who are scientists to say, yeah, this is the way that this works, but you routinely see dismay from scientists about how their work is communicated. And so one of the practical steps that I like to take mm -hmm. is what I call always click the link. You see this apocalyptic headline and it's based off of this study. Well, go click on the link to that study. And if you have a, a little bit of wherewithal and, and work to go through it, oftentimes I'm appalled at how much, no, the study isn't exactly saying what the headline was. Um, it's a good study. Like it, it means something, but it's not, it just doesn't validate what the, uh, uh, the sky is falling narrative goes with it. So um, let me say something about why I think that is. Mm -hmm. um, often in these conversations, people will say that the, this is a really an ends justifies the means type thing where the outcome of this is so bad that we have to convince as many people as possible to move so quickly in order to do it that we need this um, narrative in order to mobilize people. And so it's one that's very easy to um, quickly manipulate into, well, yeah, we're, we're exaggerating the numbers a bit here, but that's what's necessary in order to get people to do the right thing. And I think as Christians and people who think math is a moral issue, we want to be very careful not to do that. A, not on climate issues. B, not on any issue where we say, well, we need a level of extremism that goes beyond reality in order to move people in the right direction. You sort of get this, you know, you remember a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. I mean, it's still a thing, like the whole plastic trash bag, um, choking turtles and in stores moving away from that. There was a guy, I read a book called oh, Garbology, yeah. America's Dirty Love Affair with Trash. And there was a guy who had a suit made out of like 1,500 um, reusable shopping bags. And he would run around, I think, mainly in California and make this big spectacle. Um, and there, there's some truth to this in the sense that you don't need everybody to do that. You just need one crazy guy 
to help everybody think about their use of single-use plastics. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of what's going on is you get that guy, um, <laughs> using quotes there, of that guy, of like you kind of need these, these extreme, the, the sense is we need these extreme examples in order to get people to think just a little bit about doing the right thing. So um, I think there is a little bit of strategy that comes from some of the mm. extremism um, involved here that's, that's being used um, to change human behavior. To raise awareness. Yeah, raise awareness. Yeah. Well, and on that note then, yeah, I mean, wait, yeah, kind of wave a bat banner and be creative and how you do that. But on, on that note, though, Nathan, why is it so difficult for just an average person to do responsible research on this topic? It's so heavily politicized that if you just even do a simple Google search on climate change, you've got to wade through a dense thicket how do we do more responsible research? Why is it yeah, so hard? Yeah, well, and it's funny to me that even any YouTube video that you watch where somebody mentions the word climate is going to have like the little YouTube warning misinformation label at the bottom, even if it's somebody who's like super uh, on board with all of the the dictates of the, of the modern climate crisis. So it, it, it does seem to be a very guarded and uh, curated experience that you have with any of the interaction of that research. Um. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know I don't know how to answer that exactly of how do you do a better job other than to try to read the work of the scientists themselves on that. Um, and toward the end of this, mm -hmm. I want to pitch another yeah. motivation for um, for thinking about these issues that is supported by science, but maybe science isn't always the best leader in a conversation. Maybe science informs how we do something but doesn't give us much about why we should do it. Sure. And I, I agree with you. Go to primary source, sources, so to speak, but how do you locate those reliable scientists? See, again, if you're in certain circles, a lot of people will basically proceed with a guilty until proven innocent mindset thinking, well, these aren't, are these even real scientists? How do we know? I mean, how would you find a decent roster of experts in yeah, this field? That's a good question. And I, and I hate that I don't have a good answer, but let me, let me tell you just like the depth of my frustration, for example, on this. So I think it was like two weeks ago, I saw an NPR article about New Zealand imposing a carbon emissions tax on farmers for emissions from cattle. Um, and this is an NPR article that claimed that 40% of, of, of greenhouse gases come from animal burps, ruminant burps. Okay, that number is not even mm -hmm. anywhere in the neighborhood of accurate. Um, and this is, I mean, it's, and lots of people say, well, yeah, it's mm -hmm. NPR. This is what you get. But I'm, I'm saying this is, you know, um, so first of all, let's put some things in perspective. The When we're talking about um, carbon dioxide specifically, humans are responsible for 1% of the carbon dioxide that's emitted each year on the planet. And then within that 1%, you have about uh, somewhere around 12% comes from agriculture. And then within that 12%, you might get 40% comes from that associated with cattle. I'm just using some, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but we're talking <laughs> wow. about 40% yep. of 12% of 1% at a maximum. Um, <laughs> that is a very different thing than cattle are contributing 40% of carbon dioxide, you know, or methane. Um, it's wild, yeah. but there were no links to anything in that article and we have policy that's being made based off of that as if that 
So I don't know the answer to that, actually, Cameron, of um, you can read books yeah. by people who are, there are people out there raising some concerns. Um, and even people who I think are, are by and large very concerned about it, who are also backing off of saying, oh, hang on a second there. This is not the apocalypse we're, we're being sold. Well, yeah, and I think, so talk about a pitch-perfect example of the translation gap right there. But, and I also, you, you can't help but think of that quote, right? There are lies, I'll censor darned lies, and then there's yeah. statistics. Yeah. <laughs> but the, but, but also, I know some people may be having a more cynical read on that and thinking, oh no, the author of that NPR piece probably know, knew exactly what they were doing. And they just kind of misconstrued the information to make a more dramatic headline or to force political action or whatever it is. But here's maybe maybe a suggestion in the midst of all of this. Nathan, whenever there there's any major area of research, any major field of scientific research, there are certain key universities mm -hmm. and key think tanks that are usually in place. I know this is a source of suspicion as well because a lot of these places receive government funding, so there's some... But I, but generally speaking, the personnel in those in those different fields, right, in those think tanks and in those university departments are fairly, usually very well-credentialed, reliable scientists. Sometimes they're publishing papers. Sometimes they publish books as well. So basically... It might be a good policy here just to use traditional means of discerning good information if research is coming out from a top-tier university press. Probably a good chance that, that what you're seeing is fairly reliable. It's been rigorous, you know, rigorously researched and peer-reviewed. Are, are any of these fail-safe strategies? Well, of course not, but science, they don't need to be. Science is not infallible. But those are just some modest tips here for you if you really if this really is an area that you're interested in. But also, let's riff on this a little bit, Nathan, because I think both Nathan and I would be critical of the whole do your own research paradigm. <laughs> so on the one hand, I, I, I can sympathize a little bit when it when it comes to, a major sense of distrust, especially when it comes to many of our public institutions, or be they political, scientific, educational, or otherwise. But on the other hand, you're if you're not an expert in a particular scientific field, doing your own research is actually not going to do you a whole lot of good. So I could, for instance, the internet is amazing. You have information on all sorts of stuff. I could look up nuclear fission. I have access to all that information. Would I understand it and be able to reliably communicate it to other people? No. So I would need a very trustworthy and helpful guide, namely an mm -hmm. expert. And when it comes to this, you will too. So if you're going to do your own research, so long as that means you're going to, you're going to find, do your best to find reliable guides and experts in, in, in that so endeavor. So what you're pushing there for Cameron, I think this is helpful. You want to engage with ideas that permit themselves to be engaged with. And so anytime that somebody says, this is this, trust me. Yeah. Eh. But if you say, well, here's actually a, a nice public debate between <laughs> sure. somebody who says, look, I really think the data is pointing toward this and they're allowing themselves to have somebody else come back and say, yeah, but did you take into account this? Did you think about this? 
that's really where the, the beauty of the scientific community is so helpful to us, where you have other thoughtful people who, for the good of the actual pursuit of the truth, um, allow themselves to be critiqued and challenged, and then they say, yeah, actually, you're right. We probably could have done that differently. We'll go back and redo it and check on it. That's, that's the ideal. That's what we're looking for. And by the way, that's actually the same process mm -hmm. uh, that we use in my church for interpreting Scripture as well. It's a, it's a communal push back and forth of somebody studying and presenting and then somebody saying, mm. yeah, but what about this? How does this fit in? And we say, oh, you know, that's a good question. Actually, we're going to sharpen our understanding um, by having multiple voices speak to this rather than uh, one person who gets to hold the, the, the weapon of power there. Um, so there could be a sense in which people are saying, yeah, we'll just push this for you know, political gain. But there also could just be a high degree of a lack of knowledge. That's very possible, too. I, I mean, so a couple things mm -hmm. here. Like, it's amazing to me how many news sites have diet um, or food information or suggestions with them. Um, from the New York Times to pick, like, there's eat this, do this, five of these, it's good for your body. Do you really get your, I mean, dietary suggestions from YouTube and from a news channel? Turns out, yes. <laughs> yes, most people do. Um and so mm -hmm. it's it's just yeah. like, yeah, people do take the word of non-authorities on very and, – and here's where I think the cynicism is right. You know, I was reading a book a year or two ago by a lady who is the only tenured professor of nutrition in the country who isn't funded by a major food conglomerate. There's one in our entire country. Oh, wow. And she's basically saying that there's a political movement that dictates what you eat. And you read through that and you look at the shenanigans that are used to prop up certain things and you're like, wow, this is really true. Um, but in that, there is like, so for example, you will you will hear over and over again how wonderful the Mediterranean diet is for you. Might be. Is it important to know that all of the advertisement for Mediterranean diets and all the research done on that are sponsored by the olive oil industry? It's just interesting. So maybe a Mediterranean mm -hmm. diet is really, really helpful, but maybe if you're using a Mediterranean diet, you're going to use a lot of olive oil. Um, so there's just stuff like that. And so I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I think there are things where a little bit of transparency mm -hmm. would be helpful to say, who's saying this? And so that's where, when you get back into the climate thing, mm -hmm. a lot of the naysayers, as it were, people are going to say, well, they're linked to big oil into the fossil fuel industry. Um, and that's oftentimes true. That doesn't necessarily make them immediately wrong either. And so I, I wish I could have, like, here's a nice, neat, tidy way to look at this, but as is true with most categories in life, there's uh, there are helpful ideas that come from a lot of different directions. No, I think it's actually refreshing because these days, I think many of us are hardwired for legalism of one kind or another because we just want absolute certainty and we want everything with a neat bow tied around it. But that actually isn't the way life works. And it's certainly not the way a burgeoning scientific field works. And so I think you're just honoring the complexity of our world and you're showing the indispensable need for discernment. And yeah, we can't get rid of that. Well, there there are a but lot of crazy people. On that pe note, Nathan. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, no, no. I want to hear you finish oh, that. I was sentence. just going to say, I think there's there's – there's dismissal by association happens a lot. So um, let's mm -hmm. say that um, 
let's say that each scientific field does have some actual lunatics in it. Those are always going to be the ones who make the news, who then provide the platform for everybody who disagrees to reject. Um, and so I think we don't want to use the extremes in either direction, probably as a, as a foundation for making decisions. Um, and so just because an opinion that you disagree with, that camp has some crazy people in it, don't use the extremes of an ideology to evaluate the core ideas that are there. So maybe that's just a good general practice in, in most that's a uh, good. discerning. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely a good principle to, to go by there. But speaking of extremes, there are disaster movies. There are all sorts of apocalyptic forecasts. Nathan, I was mentioning to you a screenwriter and director I like, Paul Schrader, interesting guy, went to Calvin College, was raised in a very strict Calvinist home before he ended up moving to L.A., going to film school, becoming a critic, and then writing the screenplay to Taxi Driver and Raging Bull and going on to direct all sorts of movies. So now he's a legendary face in Hollywood. But one of his recent films, First Reformed, a film I actually quite liked, by the way, the mood of it is very apocalyptic. And his own conviction is that, yes, we are we are on the brink, on the verge of extinction until the next, in, in his words, until the, quote, next phase of evolution. How do we take those kinds of claims? You know, just from where you're standing and given the research you've done into this field, is it really so bad? Is it really that apocalyptic? Yeah, so, no. Um, is the answer to that. Uh, and so part of it is a failure to understand the resiliency of humanity and our ability to adapt. Now, just because you can adapt to something doesn't mean you want to invite chaos, but let's recognize what humans have lived through in the past. And so there's a bit of that. The other thing is to go look at like the IPCC, what is that, International Panel on Climate Change. Even if you take their worst case scenarios, you're not looking at the extinction of humanity anytime in the near future. So go back just to the what is considered to be the best scientific, um, you know, of a sea level rise rate of however many centimeters a year, um, you'll be able to outrun that. Um, so yes, it might, it might lead to some uh, cataclysmic uh, events. So yeah. I, I'm just saying there's a lot of stuff where if you take it at its worst case scenario and then look at it, that is deeply inconvenient. None of it points to anything that remotely resembles the extinction of humanity. Um, so some of it is like, mm. let's just go with, let's like embrace everything that the actual science on this says and look at it and say, okay, that might be difficult, but I, my kids aren't losing sleep about it at night. We'll just put it that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I think maybe a fitting way to bring this to a conclusion is really the question, okay, but what, I mean, what do we do about this? You've mentioned that you're not really satisfied with the whole notion of outsourcing the problem of the environment to the, to the government. So are there some practices that we could maybe keep in place in our own homes? Are there ways that we just as people in our own neighborhoods and homes and communities can make a difference here? Yeah, so let me answer that by peddling back to try to connect that last question you asked about the apocalyptic mood of this to what needs to be done. And I want to read to you, 
I'm, I've been looking at a lot of the psychology of the, of the apocalyptic kind of narratives that a lot of people li- uh, live with. And so I'm going to read a, a, actually a quote um, from a guy named Andy Day. And this is out of the back of a book on building bunkers and national systems of bunker construction and the whole prepper thing and, and how people live in dread and fear. And um, there's a lot more to be said about this. But let me read you this, this quote. I think this is really fascinating. Um, so this is from Andy Day. He wrote that we all have, quote, we harbor a secret desire for our own apocalypse. Quietly, we crave a future where man's capacity for self-sabotage undermines this regime, bringing both liberation and destruction, finally providing that conclusive, fundamentally authentic and terminal experience that creates the ultimate story and fatally allows us to know truly who we are. With apocalypse comes meaning. And that's, I've been wallowing in that quote for some time. Mm, Wow. With apocalypse comes meaning of like, why do we almost seem like we desire for this to be true? Despite what our senses and best science are telling us. Um, And you know what it's doing? It's creating a salvation narrative. It's saying there's something wrong with the world. And we know definitively what it is. Uh, and there's salvation for it. And here's our, here are the steps that you take. You are the savior. These are the steps that you do to save yourself. And so it's giving us a vision of the world and a way that we fit into it. That's participatory where we see our actions and the salvation and the solution to the problem of the world. And in that we find meaning. And it's like, when you start making the, the, the religious parallels between a climate apocalyptic tone of the world's on fire. Um, we're all going to die. I mean, Billy Graham wasn't even this serious when he was talking about <laughs> hell, you know. Um, but it's a literal salvation, destruction of the future. Your kids should be afraid. Uh, and here's the and here's the way to save yourself from it. Now, so as as we transition then into your question, and by the way, I think you know governments are an expression of the collective will of the people, and certainly have a role to play in a lot of what's um, being done, good and bad in the world. And obviously a lot of uh, regulation in the past has been wonderful. It's been good for human flourishing and for um, the environment and the world that we live in. So I'm not an anarchist here by any stretch of imagination. What I do bristle against is you kind of get into these, um, well, this is a a kind of a common critique of people pushing and saying, well, you know, here you have these uh, climate scientists who fly all over the world to write about you know, the degradation of different environments and use all this jet fuel and stuff, how do they work that out? And the way that they do that is by saying, look, there are certain things such as agriculture, transportation, uh, and energy that are problems that are such a massive scale that they can only be solved by the government. And therefore, your responsibility is to vote for the people who will fix this and to give money to people who will plant trees. And so actually, there has been a bit of a shift, I think, in the last year toward recognizing that's sort of a hollow thing to say you don't really have you don't need to change your personal life any. You just need to pay for other people to do things and vote for the people who will change this at the big level where it really matters. And um, climate science aside, I think as a Christian, I want to push back against that of saying um, who's really in charge of this and what's the most fundamental thing. So there's kind of a both and for me there, but I have some very deep cautions that the government knows best what needs to happen in my backyard. 
uh, from an office 500 miles away. Um, so that's not ideological as much as it is just practical experience of <laughs> how these things work out. So um, there's a sense in which bringing this back into the question of this idea of seeking apocalypse because in it we find meaning, it really gives us a vision for the way in which we're situated in reality. And that's a counter narrative to who we are as Christians of seeing the world, seeing what's wrong with the world, how are we situated in it, and then what are we supposed to do? And so I think the, the first shift that begins to happen there is to say, why, why is my motivation for doing the right thing based off of apocalyptic language? Are there other motivations to do the right thing? Um, is guilt and fear the best motivator? Is scaring somebody into action the healthiest form of transformation? And I think this is one where the church would have a lot of things to help people out with saying, uh, you know, if you're using these tactics in order to cultivate real lasting and meaningful change in the lives of people, not the best technique. Um, and so that's, that's, that's like, is as a Christian is what I do with my single use plastic based out of, this is what the sciences are say, or is it out of, this is my father's world. And I have a responsibility to be one of the cultivators and stewards of everything that's been entrusted to me. And the shift that happens then is that when you start in that second framework, you're going to be far more creative, I think far more practical, far more helpful on realistic day-to-day tasks where it's not just here are five things you need to do that come down from afar, but that's a way of life. It's a way of thinking about not only do I recycle this, but did I need it in the first place? How do I reduce my use of certain things? How do I steward my blessings well. And maybe it's not for environmental reasons. Maybe I don't want to spend so much money on disposable things because I need to be giving more money to the poor. And so there's a a, a growing divide, I think, in frustration that's happening within the Christian response to this. One is there's the element of should Christians care? And I would come down firmly on that and say, yes, that is the creation mandate. That's from like, if you want to be theologically old school and super conservative, you read back to Genesis and see that the first job that God had for humans to do was to take care of the earth that he created. Um, that is not a liberal progressive agenda. It's maybe a hijacking of a theological movement, but the idea that the world has intrinsic value, that it means something beyond just its utility to us, though it includes that, is deeply rich and has a rich biblical and theological history. And you can go back through the church fathers and even up until very recent times, the church has been at the forefront of a lot of the conversation on saying, uh, we see an intrinsic value to this good thing that God created and want to be an active part in taking good care of it. So that is there. The, the question that we're wrestling with in the modern time is, okay, so once we've crossed that bridge of should Christians care, then what is the unique Christian response here? And that one is a little more challenging because oftentimes it's just like, oh, we're going to say Christians should care. And so we'll take all of the modern political agendas and movements and then tap some, uh, attach some scripture verses to it and call it good. And it doesn't seem like it has the theological richness um, that we should have if we're really thinking about this in a holistic way. And so I'm not like poo-pooing the whole structure, but I am calling for caution on saying, is there a deeper way that we can think about this? The world is far more complex, uh, and that's where the beauty and the richness of life comes from. And so I think there is a way to be attentive. Let's see what the science says. That often is a very helpful way for us to make good decisions. But let's also approach this, first of all, as a theological and an, uh, an idea of spiritual formation, 
not as a political or an environmental one. And my thought is, and the contention that I often argue, is that when we pursue this from a Christian perspective for the sake of the goodness of the earth that God has created and for our genuine desire to live a Christ-like life and our attitude and posture toward other people, that the environmental and these other things fall into place as a byproduct, not as a goal. And so um, that, I think, is where the, the Christian conversation—I I know we're out of time here and we got to wrap this up, but that's actually where the conversation gets interesting, is to say, what is the unique Christian contribution to this conversation? And uh, I think there are things to say there, but I'll stop rambling. Well, we can pick that up and maybe devote an episode to that conversation because it does sound helpful. But yeah, thanks for letting me kind of grill you here, Nathan, a little bit on a subject that is contentious sometimes and punctuated by quite a bit of confusion. So I think we're, we're hopeful once again that this will be get the wheels turning, help you to think on the subject, and yeah, maybe make it a little, a little less threatening, a little less intimidating, a little bit more interesting. That is our hope, at least. But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's T-O-L-Together.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.